You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. Shortly before all of this coronavirus thingy-majig kicked off, I remember having a conversation with someone who works in radio discussing the positives and negatives of bringing oneself into the advocacy process. There is a school of thought that says that content should speak for itself, that bringing personal perspectives into the marketing of a product at best doesn't really build rapport or connection and at worst runs the risk of alienating the very audience that you're seeking to connect with. I know, bit strange. What a difference a fortnight makes. Just this week, I've spoken to three people for this podcast and a few other projects I'm working on at the moment, and something seems blindingly obvious to me now. Conversation, the sound of another human being's voice, is currency. Someone else's voice helps us get out of ourselves for a moment. We cling onto that person's voice. We create pictures of them in our mind. That's what brings our heart rate down. Another person's voice is our much-needed anchor. This thoroughly good emergency classical music podcast features someone I've only ever met in the flesh once before. He's known on Twitter as Adrian underscore Specs. He wears Specs. Check him out. The personality that seeps from the exchange that follows is exactly what you see on Twitter. He and I are connected and were introduced by the lovely Fran Wilson, the cross-eyed pianist who you heard in the previous podcast episode. And like Fran, Adrian brings his own mix of musical tastes which have supported him at the beginning of this crisis. The beginning of the crisis all seems like a world away now. Last week, the third week in March, feels like it was a period of transition, the need to get over a massive shock, adjustment. Now, as I record this introduction and publish the podcast on the day that it's been announced that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has tested positive for the coronavirus. It feels like, for me, at least, that adjustment phase is nearing its close and I'm instinctively understanding just how much work I can effectively get done in a day, how much sleep I really need and where I might find revenue in the months to come. I appreciate more than any other time in my life the value of conversation, the way in which the sharing of musical choices can help me understand where someone else is in response to what's going on around them and therefore where I am in response to those musical choices they have made. Music is an emotional signpost or a torchlight that exposes exactly what's going on. Sometimes it's better to talk about the music than it is to talk about one's feelings. Imagine being able to listen to music in order to access what you're feeling and understand what you need right now. Imagine that. When this is over, these podcasts will act as an archive of the people who have unwittingly supported me through conversation and music. It will document 
their thoughts and feelings and I hope introduce me and you to a wider selection of music as a result of personal advocacy which at this point in time strikes me as a necessity not self-indulgence. I'm in a slightly different position online to maybe yourself and Fran because the whole music online thing is a hobby for me. So, you know, my day job is still writing. It's um, all about finance and sort of tax and stuff like that. So I call myself a, a punter, really, and that when I write about the concerts and operas that I go to see online, I it, it's nothing to do with a kind of a press or a being a critic sort of situation it's just how the music makes me feel or something that i'm sort of driven to write about and i write about it this is what this so, this is why we get so, on you know, or at least why i think we would on. get on oh, i said this is why we would get on or why i think that we would get on because i think we share the same view mm-hmm. yeah and so i was very fortunate um to discover your blog through uh brand cross like pianist who i know listeners to thoroughly good will be familiar with and uh and yes i think we have very much hit it off online and uh you know i know we've managed to meet in real life once and that's great as well so yeah i'm you know huge admirer of your your writing so oh well, really please nice please you've started off very, really very well uh you have you have fran to thank for this she suggested you the other night when we were in conversations you must speak to adrian he'd be really interesting uh so <laughs> so i mean obviously i wanted to speak to you don't get me wrong but but um but, yeah but fran is the uh, she's the one who's pulled all the strings and sort of pulled the yeah, levers, might have you. She's the glue sticking all of this together. I think so. I think she's. Uh, I think she's lovely uh, and yeah, um, is very, very much valued. I think by a lot of people and will be invaluable when all of this comes to an end, as it yeah. will. Um, what have you yeah. been? You are very busy. I don't want you to go into the details of your work because I imagine that's sort of quite separate. But what has your experience been with work and sort of shifting into this new phase? Yeah, the new normal, as my work likes to call it. Right. Um, it is it is strange. In one position, I'm very fortunate because what I do, um, at the moment at least, can be done kind of 100% from home. You know, the kind of stuff that I write and the kind of projects I work on, I can do all of that at home. Um, but I am, at the same time, 100% an office animal. You know, even though I'm a kind of copywriter, I like going into the office. It's uh, very fortunate. It's a nice office. I work with people that I like, and because we're a communications team, we like to just ask questions of each other, you know, over the desks, you know, and if we want to go off to a booth and brainstorm an idea and sit down and work with a designer, we can do that. Um, it's probably the healthiest environment in which to create engaging communications, you know. So so even though some people think of writing as quite solitary, I, I don't necessarily, even to the point where uh, I prefer to write with a kind of ambient buzz of sort of chat around me rather than the complete silence that you sound like an extrovert <laughs> sorry you sound like an extrovert to me <laughs> are you do, do you like parties uh, i bet you do i'm probably one of those sort of like horrible hybrids that gets given a name like an a reflective extrovert or something like that you know i <laughs> i like to i think the, the the writer side of me likes to sort of listen to something and then i'm um, in, instead of necessarily coming up with an instant answer i kind of go away and process it and have it all percolate in my head but then yes but then i do like to sort of push things as far as i can you know in the kind of with like the wordplay and the sort of creative ideas which you, know, you can do in the financial arena but 
sometimes it's harder than in other areas. Yes. yes. So, so, so it was quite strange. So last week when it was quite interesting to see lots of posts on social media and things like that about people looking for ways to fill time or, you know, trying to keep their mental health on an even keel um, when things seem to be going so awry. And, you know, but ironically, we had one of our biggest projects on. So, <laughs> you know, I was kind of like health for leather through the day working on just for my sort of normal job and then trying to process everything else that's been happening in the, in the evening. So it, it, is, it is a strange time, it's definitely. But but um, I think what you're doing with this project is is right because um, it is sort of music is one of the things that, you know, seems to keep one on track and, you know, uh, it, it kind of transcends, you know, all of all of this stuff, even the life and death stuff sometimes. So, so yeah. Um, I don't know if that was the kind of answer you were looking for. But, um, it sounds as though, it sounds as though uh, actually your, your day-to-day life hasn't really shifted because, as you say, you've been in the, in the throes of a major project. Um, yeah. And that there's a certain amount, if, if only there's a, if, if there's only one change, it's just that you're not surrounded by other people. Do you find the lack of contact with other people has had an impact on you or have you just been so distracted by your work that you haven't really processed it yet? Uh, again, I just think I've been unusually lucky in that um, I had a two or three days of working at home completely by myself. And I did find concentration very difficult to begin with. Um, but then, you know, once um, my wife's office sort of sent all of her you know, team home, we've been working at home together. So, you know, I haven't actually had that kind of total isolation that I think I might have found quite difficult because, you know, she's been, even though we kind of left each other alone, obviously, um, to get on with our work, she's, uh, she's been around and, you know, hopefully I've fulfilled, you know, much the same kind of functions for her. So it's, it's more just how kind of particularly the change of surroundings is really because I'm just, you know, so kind of ingrained to doing, doing my job in an office. But I found, I found yeah. the experience, from my perspective, I found the experience has triggered my compassion bland, uh, bland, gland even, um, and, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's something as simple as just walking down the street and seeing other people, or indeed just seeing people parking up their car in the road. There was one day last week where uh, most of the cars in the road where I live had gone, and it was like, oh my god, people have abandoned the city. Where have they gone? Where have yeah. they gone? And uh, and then yesterday morning, I think it was. I've also lost track of days. That's a bit weird because mm. I am used to working at home, and I thrive when I'm working at home. That's 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 been the weird, the weird thing that I've had to process that actually my my physical surroundings haven't really changed that much it's just that everyone else around them has and certainly yeah. seeing the road parked up with cars yesterday morning it's like oh hooray everybody's back I just mm. i don't know what uh, i don't know whether i will ever tire of that and also one of the clips that you sent um uh which was bostridge doing schubert at Wigmore Hall, we will talk about it in a minute. The thing that really, really took me by surprise uh, was the sound of the applause at the end. Yes, I was going to mention that. Uh, I, I, I had an almost overwhelming experience, an overwhelming yeah. reaction to that. And I, and given the short space of time that that we're recording, I mean, this has been recorded like basically at the end of what might be regarded as week zero, because I think week one of twelve starts next week. Um, if, you know, in the space of a week, we've all been, perhaps people in the classical music world have sort of been constantly thinking of audiences are no longer allowed to come together. And, and that's, that's, that's had quite a, that's had quite an emotional impact on me. And it's made me feel very, very sad over an extended period of time. Yes, no, 
I'm 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 not I'm not surprised. That's why I hope some of these kind of online performances and um, connections sort of take root, because yeah, sometimes sometimes you think you know what you know, there's certain measures that we take that are going to get us through this, but then you know you also think what happens after that as well. You know, sort of how do we get back to normal? And I kind of I'm even hopeful that we can come through a crisis like this. And if suddenly people have got used to the idea of, I don't know, hearing Igor Levitt, you know, every evening at seven, give a piano yes. recital online or something like that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, elderly audiences in the future and, you know, having access to this music in a way that maybe they thought wasn't possible before. And, and you know, maybe musicians will even be able to expand their reach, you know, if, eventually through the kind of things that they're doing on a kind of emergency basis now. I hope that actually we come to we we come to no longer. Oh God, this is being phrased on the fly, but I hope that we no longer take musicians for granted in the same way that I don't think that we will be taking um, health workers or care workers for for granted. I think, well, I'm hoping that there will be some kind of reset um, mm. because suddenly, uh, or maybe it's just because of the network that you and I and Fran and other people like us sort of uh, naturally gravitate to. Maybe that's why we think about those people a lot more. But um, I, I do recognise how even I take them for granted. Um, and the idea, you know, just going back a month, the idea that that people would write critically about a soprano's shape or size on, on, on stage in an opera. I mean, I can't remember the name of the, the singer or indeed the name of the writer and neither well the writer certainly isn't of of um doesn't need to be flagged but but the idea that one would be overly critical in that way uh, uh that just seems like another another country really now yeah yeah i mean i know that um <clears throat> in a way i kind of blog i think in quite a luxurious way in the sense that you know, cause, you know I, I know that i mean i don't sort of think in this way at all but there is this sort of you know there are the critics and there are the bloggers and kind of eyeing each other suspiciously over the garden fence sort of thing and that kind of thing but but I think that you know I'm in a kind of privileged position you know of I'm almost the kind of polar opposite to a critic in some ways you know because the the, the critic while they will be um, partial you know they're, they're in a paid position and they're, they're kind of neutral so you know they, they go and they have to call what they see on you know uh, they have to sort of call it on what they see you know is this a business or bad performance that i'm watching or a good performance and you know i don't want to speak out of turn but i do feel that you know some by, by no means all but you know some of the ones that i read or see post do seem to have that jaded element of feeling that it's kind of okay to say anything however waspish yes. they like about about anyone whereas i'm in this kind of conversely quite privileged position where okay i pay all my tickets you know like i say i'm a punter and i go and see exactly what i want to see and that means that i'm mainly aiming to go and see stuff that i'm going to enjoy anyway and so when i go and enjoy it and then i come home and i write something positive about it i know that there are probably a few people that read my blog and think well he just likes everything and i mean that's not quite true um <laughs> but i prefer to write about what i like yes why not uh, why uh, why make the job difficult exactly. <laughs> and, and, and you know if i'm interested in something some critic telling me it's rubbish is not going to stop me listening to it. No, you know I'm going to want to listen to it anyway and make up my own mind. But if somebody recommends something to me, sort of, and it's a positive, I would definitely see, you know, go and have a listen and see, see what it's like. So that's what I try and do when I write. It's kind of, I mean, share the love is kind of really cliched sort of expression, but that to me is what it is about. It's sort of trying to get people 
engaged and interested and and you know maybe think oh you know maybe if I listen to it I'll I'll feel the way he feels or you know I'll, I'll get something out of it. Uh, what was the last thing that you attended? I mean, I make it sound like the war. I don't want to go down. I don't want to go down that that route because I think that there's a there's a political angle to that. Uh, I think there are certain part of people in the political spectrum who will sort of make hay where that narrative is concerned. However, what was the last thing that you went that you attended? Uh, well, I thought there 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 are two things I think are really worth mentioning because they're quite sort of emblematic of what 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 type of listening would be good in scenarios like this in the. the the last opera I saw was the the only performance they managed to do at E and O of the Marriage of Figaro on this run, and that was such a kind of joyful, kind of euphoric production with I thought a really clever staging, and it was a real tonic. You know, it's kind of exactly, you know, what I think everybody in the in the Colosseum needed, and it's, it's such a huge shame that they weren't able to continue with that. Um, it, and then the thing I saw before that, if I'm getting my dates in the right order is the guitarist Sean Sheba at Wheatley. Oh, oh, great. He, so you can report on that then. character and he really does, I think, um, he, he's, he's, he's doing the kind of thing that, that, that I always look for the most, I think, when I'm, I kind of latch on to somebody, which is he, he, he seems to be a kind of, kind of completely dismissive of any kind of barriers, you know, in, kind of what, in what he does. And to the point now where, I mean, he, he his last album is called Soft Loud. I don't know if you've come across it. Yes, it's brilliant. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Love it. Okay. Did you say you loved it? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Oh, um, <laughs> amazing. Oh, hey, great. And um, and I did see a recital at Wigmore Hall that he did that was sort of performing that record. And so that, that was... That was great. Was that when he was? Was that when he was dressed in some uh, in sort of like a cerise jumpsuit? Okay, so yes, <laughs> the, the so yes, the, yeah. Well, the recital where I actually heard him play material from Soft Loud was a, a late night one that was quite a while ago. And what the, the concert with the jumpsuit, which is the one I'm talking about, that was the one I went to very recently. Was a bit. It was a bit like um, some of Soft Loud. It was another program much longer because it was a, a full evening concert where the first half was acoustic and the second half was electric and it was it was as if I, mean, I really hope he's going to record this repertoire because it would be like a kind of double cd version of soft loud you know there was contemporary um acoustic pieces in the in the first half and you know followed by some bach and then and he was in this kind of quite sober you know uh Dark shirt, dark trousers, and, and and I think you know, Planet Wigmore was kind of on a sort of its equilibrium at that point. You know, no one was too disturbed by anything. <laughs> and then interval, and everyone talking about how beautiful the music was, and then the Wigmore roadies came on and they sort of set up his iPad and there's like a kind of martial speaker type thing. I can't remember what type of speaker it was, doesn't matter. But it was like you know what I, what I'm familiar with from a sort of rock, <laughs> you know, sort of stage. And, you know, more wires, a bit more technology. And he came in, you know, looking like, as I say, coming out of Slipknot or something, like a guy, guy in sort of Therese jumpsuit, electric guitar slung round his um, his neck. And he did this hour-long piece for solo electric guitar, which I'm probably not going to get the pronunciation right, Ingway, which is by George Lentz. And the volume was incredible, lots of sudden distorted guitar, um, uh 
sort of clanging noises, but then moments of real beauty as well, like sort of, you know, t- towards the end of kind of sort of, he managed to do that thing of getting a kind of a, a bass and a lead going at the same time. So you had this kind of like rumble of distortion underneath and this kind of like keening melody over the top. So, and, and the longer you listened, the more you could hear, because apparently it's one of those kind of uh, pieces that is actually written to quite a close mathematical structure, but, you, you know, you kind of flounder it at first and then it's only the longer you listen that, it comes into a bit more focus but it had a real sense of i would say the atmosphere of an electric idiot boy but you know it had this kind of, <laughs> it had this had this sense of a bit of an event because you know there were walkouts there were about you know, oh, people did walk uh, people left did they yeah oh brilliant partly excellent they partly because they couldn't take the volume and i think this is all kind of grist to his mill because yes. you know he's i think he is rightly saying well this is classical guitar music as well you know it's not played on a classical guitar but it is classical music yes um, and needs to be treated with the same, you know, sort of, and I'm not necessarily saying you need to treat classical music with reverence all the time, but it demands, you know, it deserves your kind of attention and, and respect. And um, I think the people that stayed got quite a lot out of it. Quite a few people stayed till the end. And it wasn't just, I know Wigmore has <laughs> got this reputation of having quite an old audience, but, you know, the, the people that walked out were a cross-section of the old and the young in the same way that the people who stayed were. Oh, I see. Okay. So, 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 you know, that's not really. There were some, there were definitely some adventurous oldsters in there who were. They had to kind of like hold their ears a few times, but. I do wonder. Kind of, they it's, stayed it's, and listened. It's mm. interesting hearing you uh, uh, talk about that event, which I didn't attend. Um, but I do wonder whether, in this sort of enforced gap, whether certain names or certain experiences will be looked on individually and collectively with a certain amount of fondness, such that when when the doors open again, there will be a sort of a renewed enthusiasm or or sort of appetite, a new appetite for these kind of live experiences. Because uh, when something is taken away, um, i.e., any kind of live performance. Uh, then when when they are then presented again, maybe the maybe the appetite will be greater. I mean, I'm, I wonder whether I'm sort of clinging on to false hope or something. But uh, I, I do think it's it's just interesting to hear you talk about Sean in that way. I saw him at the Gramophone Awards, um, uh, which is a massive name drop on my part, but I don't care. I was really <laughs> pleased to go. I was very pleased to go. Uh, and he was no, wearing. I bet it's great. Uh, it was. Yeah. I mean, the food. Soft Dad won an award, didn't it? It's a concept album. Yes, and he was yeah. wearing a ruff. And a velvet jacket and round linen glasses, and <laughs> and I have to say, and I'm sure actually in saying this, assuming that he listens to it, that he'll actually be quite pleased to hear this. But when I saw him, I thought, oh God, you're annoying me. You're really, really annoying me. I'm having this this irrational reaction to um, your rough. Get a proper shirt <laughs> like the rest of us have done, um, which is presumably exactly what he was hoping to achieve. Um, I also like. Yeah, it's quite funny if you look at if you look at some of his videos on YouTube and the way he, just the way he looks, seems to get progressively a little bit more out there. You know, <laughs> as time goes on, the kind of the sort of fresh-faced kind of younger videos, uh, it could be a different person. Indeed, I also like the way that you describe the people in the Wigmore Hall as Planet Wigmore. I, <laughs> I really, I think that's a rather charming, if slightly backhanded compliment, uh, which I will retain and use <laughs> many times. Well, I think, um, I think it's just the sort of because I mean you know I, I I dwell on Planet Wigmore probably as often as many as of, of, of the other the, you know the, the people that are any age going there, but I think I think it's the the, the way the it's the decor of the place and everything as well. It does, it oh, does I see. feel like okay. a sort of slight 
time warp. And so I think to have music in there that, in some respects, sort of fights against that accidental fustiness, you know, I think is good. <laughs> you know, you know, because 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 it's it's such a great acoustic and it's such a brilliant place to hear music. And I I, I went to the London, I went to at least one gig at the London Jazz Festival once when Wigmore were taking part in that, and I think it still has quite a bit of jazz, um, you know, in its program. Yes. Think, you know, that's that, that's also the good. I think, you know, they should probably, if anything, do more of that sort of thing. I like it. I also like accidental fustiness. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as well. <laughs> Sorry. That's no, really the purpose of these conversations, just to nick copy. I, I, I think it's unwitting. <laughs> um, we should talk about the things that you have recommended, which I have, uh, unlike the other podcasts in this sort of series, um, I have actually made a point of listening to. I want you to tell me, I want you to act like some kind of speaking programme note. Um, All right. Okay. Uh, which helps me avoid any mispronunciation as well, so, especially with the first one. I know it's Schubert. I can pronounce that. Um, <laughs> tell me about the first choice. That makes it sound like Desert Island Discs. I'm sorry, but it's not. No, no, it's, it's sort of Virus Island Discs, isn't it, really? Well, the truth is, I mean, my, my pronunciation, of, uh, I think, of you know, most foreign languages is, is, is terrible. But I think this is Alphalism. Oh, no, sorry, Alphalism. Okay. I'm wrong. I've been practising it this morning. Have you? <laughs> not that you were nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that I was nervous. No. no. No, I'm, 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 so, I'm much more used to the written than the spoken word, but we can do this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, meaning dissolution. And um, I, I, I suspect this is going to crop up a little bit in most of the things that we, we talk about, but I still feel, in, in, in the kind of the, the, the realm of classical music, I do still feel like a bit of a, a rookie. I mean, I've been obsessed with music for as long as I can remember, and... I've always dabbled with classical music. You know, when I was learning piano, I played classical um, piano pieces and I've been to operas, you know, I've uh, dotted about in my kind of, you know, my, my life up to this point um, and various concerts. But I would say that I only, I think I probably went seriously through almost every other genre first. You know, I'm sort of, I'm a sort of rock fan, I'm a folk fan, I like a lot of jazz, I like a lot, I like a lot of metal, which surprises some people. Gosh, okay. Um, right at the, right the outskirts of my experience, or indeed likes. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's absolutely fine. I'm not going to go on about, about metal. <laughs> you could you rest assured. Um, and then I probably, I think I became a sort of serious listener to classical music, particularly kind of Christophe's choral music, because my wife likes that very much. In the sort of twenty tens, sort of that that kind of time. So relatively, even though that's you know ten years now, that's sort of relatively recent. And I just found myself completely kind of hooked and immersed in it. But perhaps naturally, I found myself um, listening very much to uh, composers where you might say the, the affinity with kind of I don't know maybe rock music or other genres was more obvious so i mean people like glass and adams where riffs and hooks are very much a part of what they do i i got into a lot of that stuff before i got into you know any of uh, i suppose maybe the more the more kind of um revered um universally revered composers if you see what i mean and <clears throat> that's a kind of long-winded way of building up to saying that when i discovered art song and i discovered classical song it made immediate sense to me um you know, uh, that these were still bite-sized pieces of music that in themselves were kind of little gems of 
of classical music that could be kind of consumed in one sitting and and you know um and i am one of those people that think you know you know winterreiser feels to me like a concept album yeah you know that that's kind of what it reminds me of you know the the the, the i i can't help looking at a lot of this stuff through a kind of prism of my experience of other genres as well and i'm sure lots of other people do do the same thing and this has been my favorite lead um Shiva is my favorite composer i think and this has been my favorite one of his his songs for as long as i can remember Does it support uh, and, you? And I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't. Um, it, it was it accidental that it appeared to be kind of apocalyptic in nature. <laughs> that wasn't a deliberate sort of reference to the. Uh, what situation. what impact does it have on you at this moment in time, listening to it? Well, it, this is this is the irony, I think, because because it's the one that I've adored for some time. I, I go to it almost purely as a sort of piece of comforting music, but. One of the things that I think is so clever about, and I think that this cleverness is in the original poem as well as the music that Schubert put to it, um, is, is that you, you can't really be sure if it's euphoric or desperate. It kind of walks this tightrope between those two states of mind the whole time. So, you know, the, 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 the lyrics about wanting to blot out the sun and escape the earthly world for sort of heavenly choirs. You know, the, I my understanding is there are people that think, oh, well, Maya Hoffa committed suicide, so that's what it must be about. But, you know, equally, there are people that think that it's just a kind of heightened state, you know, poetic state of being, you know, a sort of Nirvana-type um, <clears throat> transcendence, you know, that, where, that enables him to leave kind of earthly thoughts behind. And the song works, I think, both as a piece of, you know, the lyrics are that ambiguous. As far as I can tell, I, mean, I don't kind of know whether maybe necessarily the German carries all of that ambiguity, but in translation it seems to. And then, I, and I think Schubert does that with the music as well. That you have that constant rumble of the piano underneath, and then um, but these kind of chiming sort of 
rangy arpeggios kind of uh, above it. And on the, I mean, I, I sent you two versions deliberately because I think that the version with that's sung by Christoph Frigardi and with Andres Steyer on forte piano, and on the forte piano, um, I just find that. Uh, I mean, I love listening to the forte piano anyway. Uh, I'd love to have one. Um, I, I love the way that the the bass notes from the forte piano are almost like an engine. You know, so there's this kind of motoric kind of aspect to, to alphas and when played on a forte piano. And yet, you also get the benefit of these ringing top notes. It's very kind of like chiming, echoey top note on the piano. And um, and I think Julia Strait, you, you know, performance on the live version that I sent you, um, it, you know, mirrors that on the modern piano very effectively. Um, I um, want to. You may, you may notice that I've just suddenly realised I've caught myself talking about the accompaniment. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's uh, it's the whole uh... time, which is a. I need to. I need to just. Would you believe? I'm kind of equal equal rights to collaborative pianist kind of person, and and I often focus on the accompaniment just as much as I do the voice. I quite understand. I uh, I just need to take a moment to shut the window. Go for it. I've now shut the window. Um, <clears throat> we'll keep that in. That's fine. It's meant to be a normal conversation. We won't keep that bit in there. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep it in because it's meant to be a normal conversation. I want to ask you about the next two. Um. Because they came as a complete surprise, uh, and they okay. made and they gave me an impression of the kind of things that you are interested in. This is Kate Arnold for barely one in a thousand. Okay, um, Kate Arnold is a fascinating musician, I think. Um, she's, uh, <laughs> I mean, she's got a lot of things. She, she, she uh, plays the violin and also hammered dulcimer, uh, um, uh, sort of hand drum, so a quite, if you like, kind of niche collection of instruments. Um, very accomplished vocalist as well. And I think immerses herself in kind of medieval um, songs and texts. So the, the EP that this track comes from has another track on it, which is a cover version of a um, a song that was written in about 1180 by uh, Comtesse de Dia, and it's sung in um, the medieval Occitan language. And um, what, but in covering it and sort of using sort of her particular arsenal of instruments, she's made this this woman from centuries ago seem very present and immediate like it's a kind of it's an it's an angry love song I will confound the swarm of drones as drop by drop I feed the stone and put the sun beneath my feet 
become so modern in her hands. You know, she's really kind of resurrected a previous extremely safely out of copyright <laughs> song. <laughs> Um, the, the, this particular track for Barely One in a Thousand um, is about alchemy. And, and I think the music sort of manages to capture that because, again, it, holds this, it has this incredibly kind of, um, I think, sort of tense, wiry arrangement where the, the combination of the hammered dulcimer and, you know, she uses the dulcimer to create the percussion sounds as well as the more familiar kind of um, struck strings sound and then she loops the accompaniment around so when you see her live she's sort of doing it all by herself and um so it's it's as if you you've kind of taken somebody from the past and sort of put them in the present and just with the equipment that they're already familiar with you say kind of write a modern pop song or write write a modern sort of piece of music and i think this is what it would sound like and i know that one of the some of the things and so i I'm, I'm aware and i became acutely aware when i was choosing these these pieces for our conversation but i think i think to be drawn magnetically towards music that is kind of clever and has a, a kind of euphoric flavor to it or builds to some kind of euphoria and also might have a kind of a foot in more than one genre camp and i think even something like alphazung does that you know it, it's obviously a piece of classical music it's a piece of art song but it makes me feel the same way as a pop song can do you know it gives me that kind of rush of energy and the kind of the all over in two or three minutes sort of attack that a pop song has. What I think is particularly great about For Barely One in a Thousand, the Kate Arnold track, is that she keeps a very kind of like tense, unresolved um, accompaniment going all the way through the first couple of verses. And when you finally get to the third verse, um, this kind of meticulous arrangement suddenly breaks into a series of kind of resolved chords. So she's singing almost the same thing in the second half of the third verse that she'd been singing you know, the melody is almost the same as it's been the whole way through. But every bar, you get a kind of a release. So like, pow, pow, pow. And, you just, and then when you listen to it, you just go, I like that. I like that as well. I like it. That's brilliant. You know, you know, you know sort of one after the other until, until the song comes to breaks into this resolution at the conclusion. And I think, and I wrote about her EP on my blog, and that one word I used was, as well as calling it, like giving it kind of like every compliment, I, I just think of, I called it meticulous. Because, you know, you, you know, this is something that she's just playing everything, looping everything, producing everything. And it's kind of, she's set those really tense, unresolved verses up at the front, knowing that you're going to reach this moment two and a half minutes later, where suddenly everything clicks into place. And then not only does it, it does it every bar, for, you know, two lines, until sort of by the end you think, that was brilliant. The first couple of times I heard it, I thought, I didn't know how she could do that. How you can kind of plan a song that's constructed like how many, however many layers of, of dulcimer that must be, and there's something that's been fiddle in it as well. I'm not sure. The thing that has really and surprised I'm... me about doing having these conversations is that um, uh, there is a school of thought that says if you just listen to music, then you will either get it or you won't get it. And actually, when I hear people talking excitedly about the thing they love and the reason they love it and then they, you get them to describe the thing then then you just think well actually now I want to go and listen to it so it's sort of uh, the conversation uh, gets me more actively engaged in a greater range of music that I perhaps wouldn't have previously considered listening to and that has truly got to be good for the artist on some level um, I was surprised by the Kate Arnold um, 
because I heard, remember that I'm recalling only listening to it once, so sure. I might have got this wrong, but I heard drama and I heard edge and sort of a little bit of darkness and sort of a little bit of peril mm. and jeopardy. And um, uh, and I heard that before I heard, is it Joe Quayle, that, the, the next one that you've chosen? Joe Quayle. Yeah. So when I heard Joe Quayle, I, I heard similarities and a sort of a mm. driving movement and sort of, again, peril and jeopardy. And it made me think of a montage, really. Um, no, but how, did, how did you come to joe's uh track um <clears throat> yeah i've been sort of listening to and i was in some ways sort of trying to champion joe quayle's music for quite quite a long time um and it's funny you saying about program notes because i've actually done a few sleeve notes for, for, for joe's records um and she's one of these musicians that never ceases to amaze me and again again the kind of what I'm, what I'm aware of here with her music is that she, although it's, it's an electric cello, but it's still a cello. And from that cello, she creates effectively uh, an, an orchestra uh, of, of, or an orchestra's worth of sound. I mean, obviously, it's an orchestra that sounds a lot like a lot of cellos, but, <laughs> but, but you know, the, the, it's, it's amazing the kind of, I, I love these musicians that they kind of work with, I suppose we might call traditionally classical or, or, or you know, um, acoustic style instrumentation but then they use looping technology electronic sort of assistance to, to make the music they can hear in their head if you feel to me and i i heard uh, and the thing about joe's music is, is that she i i think i first came across her supporting another similar artist that i like and and, and this is one of the things that we talked about breaking down barriers is that, is that i feel like i'm you know i'm mainly here some of these, I suppose, neoclassical, for want of a better word, or these people that are, are kind of semi-classical, but but also semi-something else. They're almost on, they're like on the gig circuit, on the rock circuit. You know, I think Joe Quayle should be playing at Wigmore Hall, but actually, quite a lot of the time, she might be playing something like, you know, supporting someone in, you know, a Tufnell Park Dome or something like that. You know, it's kind of, it's a completely different circuit. And so, you know, I came across her music um, supporting... Uh, uh, another band, another artist that, that I admire as well, and um, and these places are, you know, so they're such small operations a lot of the time that, you know, you can start talking to the artists because they're selling their own CDs, you know, at the, the table afterwards and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I got to hear more of her music and and started going to hear her regularly. So I heard her sort of you know, live quite quite a bit. So that's kind of how I. I, I sort of discovered her by accident and by bothering to listen to Nurse Kowak, I suppose. How has uh, her music um, helped you this week? Um, I think for the reasons that I described before, that it's, um, it's, I think it's very soulful. I think it's very open-hearted. I think that it kind of, it manages to sort of give energy and sucker you know, I think that um, there's something about the cello as well. There's something about the cello. I think that it, it has quite a cradling sound, kind of a warm bar for the sound. <laughs> and but but I have to say that one of the things I like about a piece like Mandrel Cantus is is that it, it's sort of the way that it, it it refuses to accept that I suppose the rock worlds and the classical worlds can't mix. 
the way that um, where does sort of the more distorted layers of the cello end and the, the guest electric guitar, because there's a guest player on that track, where does that begin? You know, where do the plucked strings of the cello sort of stop and become more like the kind of bleeps that you might hear in electronica? And, and in a track like Mandrel Cantus, that, that all kind of, you know, builds to this huge climax. And again, you get this kind of moment of euphoria at the end where it all comes together. And so, you know, I find myself, even though it, you could call it a dark sound, you could call it an intense sound or whatever, it's not, I know there's this kind of thing going around at the moment you know, about whether you're allowed to find classical music relaxing or not, or if it, you know, has to be challenging. But I don't necessarily draw a distinction. I can find quite sort of scary and challenging music, quite comforting at the same time, in the same way that, you know, I might watch a ghost story or something like that. It's still good. You know, it's it gives you a bit of release and... You know, um, I, I'm i fired up and comforted by what I think is the kind of the skill and the talent and the intricacy of something like the Joe Quayle piece. Uh, that's really um, that's really useful, actually. That's really useful for me to, to bear in mind. And it, it reminds me that, um, that for some people it's not necessarily about accessing emotions. It's, it's, it's also about being reminded of talent and detail you you are clearly detail oriented because uh, you talk about <laughs> uh meticulousness and um and, right. and energy and uh and what have you i'm i i find that very useful um because it's a different perspective uh, the last one was from um uh carolyn sampson and joseph middleton's album the contrast which i think is a recent release i think it's february very 2020 recent. isn't it um which has got a track by Hugh Watkins on it. It's not Hugh Watkins' track uh, that you selected, but um, a song. I by... nearly did. You nearly did. Hugh Watkins will be delighted. Don't you? <laughs> uh, it was either it was either the the five Larkins songs are on this. It's apparently the first recording, um, and I almost picked the setting of Love Songs in Age, but in the end I went for this track um, because there's something so joyful about it. Um, yeah, the, the, the poem is completely hat-stand in the first place. Is the reference to uh, I notice in the track listing it says after facade. What is the the after facade reference about? I mean, chronologically it's written after facade, but is there some musical reference that in this collection of songs that I'm not aware of? 
Um, oh, I've tested you. I'm sorry. What a terrible thing no, to no, do. Okay. I have I have got the CD with me because I wonder if something like this would happen. There are settings. <laughs> I, I don't. Bizarre is not a work I know very well, but I, I think there's a kind of there's a work that is kind of. Um, Bizarre as an entity is there that I think might be music plus readings. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember yes. now. But this is this is setting it, on the CD. It's called Three Facade Settings. Right. And so there, it's it's. I'm not sure quite how separate that is from the actual facade. But this this is a group of three just distinct settings of Sitwell poems at the end of the CD. Um, I'll try and find which uh, leaf through the booklet quickly. The programme note, um, who I should credit, Paul, Paul Rodmel. Uh, yeah, Walton's settings of Edith Sitwell's facade poems caused outrage when premiered in 1923, but soon became popular and established the young composer's reputation. And then it goes on to say many of the... goes on to talk about that these three particular settings were formed in 1932. Crumbs. Uh... Published in 1932. That's very useful. Thank you very much. Uh, one final question for you, which is, uh, what can you see out of your nearest window? Uh, out of the nearest window, I can see our garden, which is uh, and our and our garage, which is um, you know uh, slightly slightly dilapidated now. We've had to kind of tape over one of the windows, um, and it's got loads of stuff in it. The car, there's no room for the car in there at the moment. Right. Uh, so, so yes, it's just our our, our backyard. Uh, and what's in the garden? Is there a lawn? Are there plants? Are there? I, I need detail, Odin. I need detail. You need detail. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Give you a flavour. It's it's not um, it's not very bright and colourful. There are there are sort of plants uh, and, and greenery dotted about. Two beds down each edge. There is a lawn in the middle. We have a bench down by our garage. One of the things that I think we're very lucky to have is a walled garden, essentially, rather than just a fence. So nice sort of brickwork going around the outside. Is it, a, is it an old brick and wall? And it's more and more common these days. Masses of wheelie bins. Yes. More wheelie bins than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> Three and a half at the last count. <laughs> it's sounding quite middle class now, which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying it just sounds quite middle class. Well, yeah, I suppose, I suppose, you know, call it as you see it. <laughs> Uh, is it is it an old brick wall for for the walled garden or is it a new brick wall? Because I you, you know now I've I've got an image of of a walled garden. Uh, no, well I don't I don't you know it's it, it's it's pretty it, it's sort of I think around sort of the age of, you know, I think it's ages with the house so sort of thirties ish I think. Oh, I see. So you don't live in a country house. That's that's. Oh God, no! no I, right. don't gave, I don't ever gave you that idea. <laughs> Turned walled garden, and my imagination no. ran away with me. That's all. If you if you if you saw the place, John, you would be you would be so unbelievably disputed with the country house notion. Okay, well, let's not shatter illusions. Let's not shatter illusions. This is this is, uh, this is Croydon we're talking about. Uh, oh, I see. I didn't realise you were quite so close. Uh, have you been to Fairfield Halls yet? I mean, obviously you can't now. Have you been to the new Fairfield Halls yet? No, I haven't. No. I mean, you can't now, quite... but. No, I know it's a bit difficult now, but it's. It's quite frustrating because we were looking forward to them opening again and just because I haven't got around to booking any, any tickets. Um, as yet, and now it will be it will be a while. Um, but, but that, I mean, even from the outside, it looks like they've, they've made a sort of quite handsome sort of job of it. So yeah, and the inside, to... the inside is looking good. The inside is absolutely looking good. I was going to say, cause you, have you been? Yeah, I went to a London no. Mozart Players concert there and the acoustic That's is right, brilliant. No, I knew I'd seen something about it. You, you, you tweeted something about it. Yeah. 
Uh, this has been great. Thank you very much indeed. No problem. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thank Good. you very much. Uh, I, I find it sort of quite therapeutic. Uh, so, you know, you have in a very real sense helped me, uh, quite apart from the fact that I've made some content. So, you know, thanks as well. Uh, uh, okay. It was an absolute pleasure to do, John. Thank you very much for, for sort of asking. Uh, it's very kind. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Emergency Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting its production for as little as $2 a month via Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. Your support is very much appreciated. It will help pay the bills. 